Hi, Eric Goldwine here from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. The U.S. healthcare system is plagued by racism, and nowhere is that more evident than in the nation's 15,000-plus nursing homes. Whether it's COVID, care quality, or inappropriate drugging, research consistently shows significant disparities that impact Black nursing home residents. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Shekinah Fashaw-Walters, Assistant Professor at the University of Minnesota and Fessler-Lampert Chair in Aging Studies, and we'll talk about the policies, practices, and structures that disadvantage marginalized communities. In the interview, we chat about the historic and contemporary forms of racism, the colorblind policies that are failing nursing home residents, new research on schizophrenia diagnoses, and lastly, perhaps most importantly, is what you as a family member, researcher, or resident advocate can do with all this information. Head to the show notes for links to articles and resources mentioned on the show. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. I am here with professor, long-term care researcher, and dog mother, Dr. Shekinah Feshal-Walters. Uh, our audience might remember Shekinah from LTCCC's March webinar, which focused on inequities in long-term care. Shekinah, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here, and I'm happy you mentioned dog mom because I am being a dog mom right now. I tried to take her jingles off, so hopefully she doesn't make too much noise during this, but yeah, it's great to be here as well. So your research uh, and your webinar uh, focused on this too, but it follows a consistent theme, and that is structural racism as a fundamental cause of long-term care inequities. Uh, There's a lot to get into, but can you start uh, by explaining what that structural structural racism looks like in nursing homes and how that drives disparities? Sure. Uh, So as some of your listeners may know from my previous presentation, structural racism does take several different forms or racism more broadly takes several different forms. Uh, And one of those is structural racism. It's about the policies, the practices, the structures that continue to disadvantage already historically marginalized and disadvantaged communities. And so we see that in different ways within nursing homes homes. Uh, I think most recently we've seen that with COVID and uh, its impact around sort of what we would refer to as environmental racism. We see where those nursing homes that have a high proportion of Black patients, those nursing homes that have the highest rates of transmissions, that those tend to be centered within specific types of neighborhoods, right? Those neighborhoods that have a higher proportion of Black patients or Black residents as a whole. And because of that, we can refer to that as environmental racism because of how uh, COVID spreads and because of how uh, neighborhoods have been designed over time through residential segregation. And so that residential segregation is then depicted through our nursing homes, which continue to be some of the most segregated entities in America today. 
no longer legalized segregation, but still de facto segregation exists. We see that in the disproportionate reliance on Medicaid, that those nursing homes that serve and are more likely to serve greater proportions of Black patients or Hispanic patients, that they tend to be Medicaid reliant, have lower uh, Medicaid reimbursements or uh, lower resources in terms of being able to support their staff uh, or even their residents. We also see it in relation to policies and the sort of quote unquote unintended consequences of maybe public reporting or value-based purchasing and the impacts that those have. We see uh, racism manifesting in how we track quality or the lack of equity measures across long-term care. Uh, and I can go on and on <laughs> with a list of the different ways that we see um, uh, racism manifesting within long-term care, but those are the few that come top of mind. Right. And one of... Uh, the kind of more, uh, I guess this is more a research question, but often, oftentimes we see these disparities and uh, you can look at it from a socioeconomic perspective. And I think you mentioned it with like with Medicaid, you'll see that lower SES residents get poor care. Um, and there's, there's some correlations between race and socioeconomic status how can we disentangle those two variables? Yeah, <laughs> that's the, I think, main point is that we can't disentangle those variables here in America, right? Like race and socioeconomic status are so intertwined with one another that it is very difficult to entangle uh, those those two variables. So uh, oftentimes folks would want to blame socioeconomic differences such as Medicaid on uh, Medicaid reliance on some of the racial ethnic disparities that we see here in this country. But what we know is that racism itself is one of the fundamental cause, causes of the socioeconomic disparities that exist. And so I will say it is difficult to be able to disentangle the two. So the important part is being able to understand how racism gives rise to socioeconomic disparities. And that goes back to residential segregation. Uh, that goes back to uh, poor mortgage lending practices, discriminatory practices. A lot of the wealth that's built in this country is built through home ownership. And for a very long time, Black folks and other people of color were not allowed to own homes. And so there's a lot of wealth that's used and built at that stage that then helps to provide care and long-term care. And so now we're seeing some of those uh, discriminatory practices unrolling um, and unraveling in this long-term care space in terms of the quality of care that folks can access in their Medicaid reliance. So it all goes back, not just contemporary forms of racism, but historic forms of racism that have left their mark on our older adult population. And something I've seen uh, both, uh, both with your research and really with research in general, and this is a little semantic thing that I think actually um, is indicative of a, of a larger uh, trend, I believe, in the right direction. But uh, we're seeing more uh, research titles that say things like racism is the driver of this and not just uh, racial, or racial differences and so-and-so resonance. Uh, more people are using 
the word racism in the mm-hmm. academic community. Is this something I'm, I'm just making up or is this something you're seeing? No, this is true. Uh, so there was a study done back in, I want to say 2018 um, by some researchers that looked at um, the use of the term racism throughout the literature, uh, the public health literature specifically, and it was very few and far between. And since then, there has been an explosion of this terminology use. And um, a lot of this is really good, honestly, because we're starting to see that it's racism that's causing these differences and not race. Uh, Oftentimes, race is simply a proxy for racism because nothing about race is truly biological. So when we're talking about racial differences, we're talking about differences that have been caused by racism, uh, where folks have been racialized into these different hierarchies and groups. Uh, So yeah, there's a, there's a huge explosion. It's not your imagination. It's actually happening. uh, And it's exciting to see as long as the work is also being done well. There are some studies where folks will talk about racism, uh, but when you look deeply into the study, there's no measure of racism. There's no true consideration of what racism means in a particular context. So there's still a lot of work going on here at the University of Minnesota and beyond uh, that looks at how to measure racism uh, and the implications that has for access to care, quality of care, and outcomes. Now, one area you've focused, uh, uh, much of your work is focused on is schizophrenia diagnosis. Uh, mm-hmm. And you had a paper that uh, actually caught the attention of the New York Times. It was featured uh, last uh, last fall, I, I believe. And it was about the disproportionate increases in schizophrenia diagnoses among uh, Black nursing home residents. Now, before getting into into the findings, the uh, findings on racial disparities. Can you talk about what uh, you're seeing with the schizophrenia diagnoses in the general population, um, just in in general, and the significance of that uh, that trend? Yeah, absolutely. So from some of the research that we've seen, and just for listeners who might not be familiar, schizophrenia uh, is oftentimes associated with delusions or hallucinations, uh, disorganized speech or incoherent speech. Uh, It's also associated with sort of unusual movements or the decreased emotions uh, and those sort of things. And these key symptoms oftentimes last for at least a month for someone to be diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia. And they uh, these symptoms are usually associated with a disruption to uh, one's ability to work or relationships. We also see schizophrenia typically uh, diagnosed within that 20s to 30s age range, very rarely do we see uh, what they would call very late onset schizophrenia, which is schizophrenia that's diagnosed after the age of 60. Um, And typically schizophrenia is treated with the use of antipsychotics. And so that relates to the study that I did uh, because one of the questions that I was asking was about how antipsychotics have decreased so much over time after after the implementation of one particular uh, policy or partnership. Um, And 
Something else that we know more generally about schizophrenia is that Black people are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And the next question might sort of be, why is that? And I think researchers are still working to figure that out. Some uh, researchers believe that this is because of environmental risk or stressors. Uh, and just as I said earlier, when we're talking about race, what we're really talking about is racism. And so when I sort of get the question of why are Black people more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, then I have to start to ask, well, what role does racism play in the manifestation of schizophrenia? Uh, so we can talk about environmental stressors, we can talk about generational trauma, uh, and all of that work is still underway uh, by folks that do way more on schizophrenia than I do. But generally, that's sort of our understanding of the disease broadly, uh, and then uh, also its impact uh, by racial ethnic groups. And uh, just as a sidebar, uh, maybe it's a regular bar, but uh, the implications of antipsychotics are, uh, are significant in that uh, one of the metrics for antipsychotic drug use excludes uh, residents who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. So That's I'm right. going to simplify it a little bit but we are seeing a, a slight decrease in antipsychotic drug use risk adjusted. However, we're seeing a significant increase in schizophrenia diagnoses. And there was actually a New York Times uh, article that uh, found that a lot of these diagnoses might be phony. They might not, um, <laughs> yeah, they might not be justified. Yeah, yeah, that was the big question in the paper that I wrote. So the paper was focused around what I would refer to as a colorblind policy, which was the National Partnership to Improve Dementia Care. And just as you were saying, this partnership was focused on decreasing antipsychotic use among dementia residents within nursing homes or uh, nursing home residents that have dementia. And the one of the exclusion criteria, so uh, a nursing home won't get dinged for providing antipsychotics to a nursing home resident with dementia if that nursing home resident also has schizophrenia. And so one of the ways to sort of circumvent this policy would be to only give antipsychotics to residents uh, with schizophrenia. And so it is very interesting that we found this increase in schizophrenia diagnoses um, and that the New York Times also found very similar uh, findings within their own research. So whereas the partnership has been hailed as a great success in decreasing antipsychotics, we do have to think about sort of who's in the denominator and who we're adjusting for uh, and how that might change coding practices within a nursing home setting. Mm -hmm. Now, you probably went into this research with your hypotheses and your expectations, um, and I'm sure some of those uh, matched your expectations, but was there anything that surprised you about, uh, about your findings or just about the process? Yeah, I would say the most surprising thing, honestly, was to see that schizophrenia diagnoses were decreasing for everyone except Black nursing home residents with dementia. 
I honestly expected that they would be increasing. Schizophrenia diagnoses would be increasing for everyone with dementia. Uh, but seeing that it was decreasing for non-Black residents with dementia, but increasing for Black residents with dementia only, I think was really surprising and really underscored this idea of uh, the failure of colorblind policies. I think another sort of not surprising because this was sort of the design of the study, but uh, somewhat shocking, maybe not to myself, but to other researchers, uh, was that we had uh, sort of facility fixed effects within this research, which means we were making comparisons of residents within the same nursing homes. And for those listeners that know how racial disparities operate within long-term care, it's usually across nursing homes, meaning that Black and Hispanic patients typically go to lower quality nursing homes, and that's why they have a disparate um, quality of care or outcomes of care. But these Black and non-Black residents that I was comparing with in this study, they were in the same nursing home, essentially. And so that means that within the same nursing homes, patients were being treated and differently diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, and that, I think, is surprising and, and in some ways goes against our understanding of how disparities work uh, within long-term care, but speaks a lot to uh, the sorts of policies or practices that need to be put into place uh, to support our Black nursing home residents. And that kind of brings me back to, uh, we talked before about disentangling uh, race from the other variables. And that would be one way to disentangle uh, uh, and, to, and to isolate, um, uh, isolate uh, racism as a, as a factor driving the disparity. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, the focus on this particular policy, uh, if you recall, I, I mentioned sort of colorblind policies as a form of racism. So focusing on this policy and doing this difference in, in differences analysis and seeing the impact of this policy on uh, Black residents is one way to see it. I think it's also important to note that this study looks at sort of the intersection of Black patients that have and don't have dementia. And so a lot of work around dementia might only focus on uh, populations that have dementia very broadly. But it's so important that as researchers focusing on Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, that we also focus on the intersections with other identities, whether that be racial identities uh, or gender or sex identities, um, because all of those play a part in the receipt of antipsychotics or the type of care or the support system that exists, all of those pieces that matter uh, that matter for receiving a high quality of care uh, and aging with autonomy and dignity. Mm -hmm. And say you're a, a family member or a, uh, a long-term care ombudsman. What do you do with a, uh, a information like this? What do you do with this research? How can you apply this to your um, personal life or in the case of ombudsman to your work? Yeah, I think this work is so important, especially because it's on such a large data scale, right? It can be hard to see yourself or see one particular case in, in such large numbers. Uh, but I think it's important to just be armed with this information, right? To have this knowledge, 
to be able to advocate uh, for your loved ones, for your nursing home residents, to make sure that everyone's aware of what's written on their charts. You know, I think this goes back to the New York Times uh, story that came out where the woman in that story had no idea that um, her loved one was being given antipsychotics or that they even had the schizophrenia diagnoses where she had never known them to have uh, schizophrenia. And so I think being aware of what's included in the information, what's being reported about them uh, through their MDS or through their chart um, is so important in terms of understanding the diagnoses that are associated with them uh, and understanding how those diagnoses got there? Were they always there? Did they pop up recently after maybe some other occurrence happened? Maybe there was wandering or maybe there was a behavioral change that is oftentimes associated with dementia. Uh, but maybe after that, then the schizophrenia diagnosis appears, then that should raise a huge question mark. Uh, and then I think it's also important for families and ombudsmen to be aware of what medications are being given to family members. There is more general research around um, uh, Black folks who do have schizophrenia, where we see that they are being given antipsychotics, but they're being given first generation antipsychotics with which doctors already know aren't as effective or safe as second generation antipsychotics. And so it's really important to understand that even when there is a proper diagnosis, that there's still room for desperate care. And uh, so I think being aware of the medications that are being given is really important and being aware of the diagnoses that are um, assigned to a particular resident is also extremely important. And being able to act on the information that exists on this study uh, that's been shared through the New York Times and that so many others are also focusing on. Thanks. And I'm going to give a shameless plug to the nursing home 411.org Dementia Care, uh, uh, Dementia Care Learning Center. I'll put a link to that in our show notes that has some information uh, uh, for, uh, for that can help families. And there's also plenty of, of great resources out there. Now, I want to hear a little bit about, about you and just about mm. your uh, experience these last few years. I, I guess we'll, we'll, start a, we'll start a little before that. How did you get into this, to this field, into, into aging? Um, what's, what kind of sparked your interest there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's like a long story from a couple of different angles. I have my yeah. personal story of being a caregiver to my late grandmother and just being a part of her care journey from dialysis to needing meals delivered to her home to needing other support and just sort of being along for that ride, even as a high school student. But I don't even think I realized that I had that deep of a connection to aging and older adults and long-term care um, until I was well into my master's program. And then I started to piece things together as to why I was so passionate about this research. But this research for me actually started in undergrad at the University of Central Florida. I was looking for a research mentor because I was just interested in what research was and what that looked like and how to do it. And I saw this really cool study about 
patient provider concordance. And I wanted to study young Black women and how they interacted with their uh, providers. And so I found the one Black woman at my university that was doing healthcare research. And I told her about my idea. And she's like, oh, that's real great. But I do work on older adults. And I was like, what? I don't care about older adults. Like I literally just got away from my grandma. Like This is not on my agenda, but you know what? I'll give it a try. And my first study was focused on racial disparities in physical restraint use in nursing homes. It gave rise to my second study, which was focused on antipsychotic use across nursing homes. Um, And, you know, I really enjoyed that first study in undergrad but I said, I'll give something else a try in my master's program. So I went back into the direction of young Black women and focused on breast cancer survivors. But something just reeled me back into long-term care. I'm, I'm fascinated by how complex and complicated this system is. But I also really recognize um, sort of the historic disadvantage that a lot of our older adults have gone through. They've lived through forms of racism that I've only read about. And I think that the last part of their life is more than deserving to be better than the first part of their life. And so the reason I continue to do this work today is to ensure that those historic forms of racism, the contemporary forms of racism, do not impact our older adults' ability to age with autonomy and dignity uh, and to age in the way that they really want to. And so I kind of got here in a way I didn't expect to, but I stay here because that mission and vision is really close and near to my heart. Now we're going to close the interview with our guest uh, recommendations segment. So we ask our guests to recommend one long-term care related item. This can be a website, a book, uh, anything, and one non-long-term care related item. So what do you got for Mm -hmm. us? All right. So my long-term care related item is going to actually be a plug for a series of research papers that's coming out from uh, some collaborators here that I have at the University of Minnesota. Uh, One of the papers I wrote with a a student here along with the rest of our team, Taylor Boosie, called Serious Mental Illness in Nursing Home Literature, uh, a scoping review. And it talks about the ways in which serious mental illness, including schizophrenia, how uh, how it's defined, how it's been studied. Uh, and so that's a really great article to go to. And there's another piece all out of the same project that's called Serious Mental Illness in Nursing Homes, Stakeholder Perspectives on the Federal Pre-Admission Screening Program. And so lots of great work continuing to come out of Minnesota here uh, related to serious mental illness in nursing homes. And so keep your eyes out, uh, keep your eyes open for that. My non-long-term care item is going to be a plug for Beyonce's new song, (laughs) The Summer Hit, uh, Break My Soul. This song has been speaking a lot to me lately um, and just sort of pushing forward with these passions that I have around research uh, and in academia and policy. Uh, And so if you're looking for a good summer song, that Beyonce song is a (laughs) go-to. Whenever I have a, a chance to put a, a Beyonce music on a website for nursing home and long-term care, I got to do it. So I'm thrilled with 
with the wreck there. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. about that. The, the search, the search uh, engines get really confused when they see these. Shows. That's okay. Uh, it's well, great. We're raising awareness even more. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And how can people find you and find your work? Yeah, great question. So I am on Twitter. I'm pretty active in that space, the academic Twitter world. I'm at SF Walters PhD on Twitter. Uh, you can also go to my website, sfwalters.com. Uh, I'm also at the University of Minnesota. If you want to shoot me an email, it's safw at umn.edu. And I look forward to connecting with more folks um, as I continue to build my career in this space, hoping to make a great difference in our long-term care space. So great. Thanks. Great. And follow us, follow Shekinah for all content relating to long-term care, Yay. dogs, and Beyonce. Thanks so much for, <laughs> for uh, coming on. Thanks so much.